Well, I encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, and this morning we're going to be looking at verses 13 to 17. Let me read for us uh, this passage. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. That is to trap Jesus in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Let me pray. Father, help us now as we seek to worship you through your word. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to focus our hearts and our minds upon your word and your truth. And I pray that you would help me to expound this passage clearly and faithfully. And we pray this for the glory of Christ's name. Amen. Well, um, in light of everything that's been happening in our society, I think more and more people, whether it be atheists, secularists, religious people, and Christians, are wrestling more and more with what the role of the government is and our relation to the government. In the Christian world, there's much debate and discussion some godly and some ungodly. And the honest truth is, this isn't all that new. It may be new for some of us, but, but it's not historically new. In fact, this was a hot topic in Judea amongst the Jews. The people of Israel were under Roman rule and reign. They were conquered by Rome. Rome was their oppressor. And there's a diversity of opinions, of convictions, on how the Jews ought to respond to Roman rule and oppression. And here in Mark chapter 12, one of the questions that was brewing amongst the people was whether or not one should pay taxes to Caesar, to their oppressor. So tense was this topic that some of the religious leaders thought they could trap Jesus by asking him about it. You see, Jesus, through Mark chapter 12, has been engaging in these controversial conversations with the religious leaders. And at the end of verse 12, we're told that they left him and went away after he had told them the parable of the tenants. But in verse 13, it would seem that they were up to their old tricks again. We're told that they sent to him, that is to Jesus, some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians. 
Now, what's interesting is you couldn't imagine two more opposite groups than the Pharisees and the Herodians. These two groups were hostile to each other. The Pharisees were the, were the purists. They were the separatists. They were resistant to Rome. Whereas the Herodians were accommodating to Rome. They were loyal to the Herodian dynasty. They were pro-Roman. In our modern context, you could say that the Pharisees were the right-wingers and the Herodians were the left-wingers. They didn't like each other. You just couldn't imagine more opposite or opposing groups than these two groups. But it's amazing how when two groups have a common enemy, how they'll work together against that enemy. And that's what you have here. Jesus was that common enemy. He was a threat to both the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now, we're told they were sent to Jesus, and in verse 1, we're told their intent, their purpose. They were sent to him to trap him in his talk. That was their intention and purpose. If they can get Jesus to stumble over his words, maybe his influence will wane, but also maybe they can even condemn him. You see, they're doing something similar to what happened in chapter 11, verses 27 to 33, where the religious leaders tried to trap Jesus in regards to his authority. And so they come to Jesus, and before they ask their theological or political question, they make some comments to Jesus about who he is. As they said in verse 14, And they came to him and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinions, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. You are true. You don't care about people's opinions. You're not swayed by appearances. That is, Jesus is not afraid of mankind. He does not have the fear of man in him. Not only that, truly he teaches the way of God. Now, of course, this isn't sincere whatsoever. These men are not sincere. They have one intention, trap Jesus in his words so that they can condemn him. But there is great irony here because everything they say about Jesus is in fact true. Though they don't believe a word they're saying, everything they're saying is true. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is not swayed by opinions or people's appearances like all of us are. He does truly teach the way of God. He's not a phony like the rest. And so they make these insincere comments and then they ask the question. And this question has a purpose. Let's trap him. So what's the question? Verse 14. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now, it's hard to see this because of our modern context, but this question puts Jesus into a compromising position, either theologically or politically. There were many Jews who believed it to be immoral to pay taxes to Caesar, their oppressor. 
to pay the tax was to acknowledge Caesar's domination over them. Or so they thought. So if Jesus said, you ought to pay the tax, then the Pharisees could accuse him of being a sellout to Caesar, a compromiser. And because of this, his, his influence would have waned greatly amongst the people. But if he had said, you ought not pay the tax, then the Herodians could accuse him of being an insurrectionist. This could invite reprisals from the Roman authorities. You see, in some ways, the people are reacting in similar ways that we see today amongst Christians. You follow government regulations, you're a sellout and a compromiser. You defy the government, you got what's coming to you. Christians saying this to each other. Our reductionistic thinking seems to be present in all ages. So they back Jesus into a corner. He's either a sellout or an insurrectionist. So what does Jesus do? Look at verse 15. But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. Here's a simple lesson for us this morning. You cannot hide the intentions of your heart from Christ. He knows the intentions, the motives, the purposes of every human heart. And here he confronts them on their hypocrisy and their insincere intentions. Why do you put me to the test? You're not coming here with a sincere, sincere question. And in fact, nothing you said to me just before this was sincere either. You're simply trying to trap me. Now, you can only imagine what their faces would have looked like in this moment. How does he know this? How does he know that we're simply here to test him? But the other thing is this. Jesus doesn't completely disregard them. He tells them to bring him a denarius. Now, a denarius would have been a, basically a day's wages for a laborer. And so he tells them to bring him this denarius. And in verse 16, he asks them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Caesar's. See, on, on one of the sides of the coin that Jesus had, it would have bore the head of Caesar and had an inscription which in English would say, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. And on the reverse, it would have said, chief priest. You see, it was quite common for the Caesars to claim to be divine figures. And so Jesus asked this question about whose image is on the coin, and they, of course, respond with Caesar. And it's at this point where Jesus gives his answer to their question, and it's an answer full of wisdom. By his answer, they cannot accuse him of being a sellout, nor can they condemn him for being an insurrectionist. So what's his answer? Verse 17. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. You see, in the ancient world, coins were considered to be the property of the person whose picture and inscription were on them. 
Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. This coin has his likeness. It belongs to him. So he taxes you. So you give to Caesar what's his. As Matthew Henry states, the circulation of the money is from him as the fountain and therefore it must return to him. See, none of them could object to this. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. The coin bore the image of Caesar, therefore give the coin to Caesar. We bear the image of God, therefore give yourselves to God. That's the point Jesus is making. This coin bears the image of Caesar, give your money to Caesar. You bear the image of God, give yourselves fully to God. Listen to Tertullian. Render the image of Caesar which is on the coin to Caesar and the image of God which is imprinted on the person to God. You give to Caesar only money, but to God give yourself. Or listen to how Augustine puts it. We are God's money, but we are like coins that have wandered away from the treasury. What was once stamped upon us has been worn down by our wandering. The one who re-stamps his image upon us is the one who first formed us. He himself seeks his own coin as Caesar sought his coin. It is in this sense that he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. To Caesar his coins, to God your very selves. Give to Caesar what belongs to him, but the most important things, friends, is give yourself fully to God. So what was their response to Jesus's answer? Well, we're told they marveled at him. They marveled at him. They marveled at the wisdom of his answer because they knew that through his answer, they could not trap him. On the one hand, the Herodians couldn't accuse him of insurrection because Jesus said, give to Caesar what's Caesar's. And on the other hand, the Pharisees couldn't accuse him of being a sellout because Jesus in his statement made it clear that God, alone's, God alone deserves absolute devotion and allegiance, not Caesar. Now, from this simple statement that Jesus makes, there are some very important theological, political truths that come from this statement. In fact, this could be the single most influential political statement ever to be said in the history of man. This statement by Jesus was central and determinative in shaping really much of Western civilization. Paul's exposition of it in Romans 13 has given shape to much of the political world today. And so what are some of the important truths that are implied by Jesus words. Get ready, I'm going to get political this morning. There are five truths that I want us to see. Now I want you to understand this. What I'm going to say here this morning is not complete. So if you at the end of my message are going, why didn't Pastor Peter address this? It's because I do not have enough time to address everything. But I want to address five truths. Five things that would give us basically a basic framework or key principles in helping us understand what the government's role is, what our relationship to the government is, and our relationship to God. So the first point or the first thing that I want us to see is this. The state 
is a legitimate institution created by God. It's implied in the statement, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. The Apostle Paul understood this when he articulated Romans 13, 1-2, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. And please understand this. Paul is not speaking here of only a morally upright government. He is speaking of any government. Though the state can abuse its authority, the authority that's been given to it by God, the state has been instituted and created by God. It's better to live with a corrupt government than no government at all. You don't want to live in anarchy with no rule of law. So that's the first thing I want us to see. The state has been instituted and created by God. Secondly, because the state is a legitimate institution established by God, we as citizens and Christians have obligations to the state. Let me give you some of our responsibilities or obligations. The first is this. We pay our taxes to Caesar. Give to Caesar what is Caesar. The Apostle Paul in Romans 13, 6 says, For because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Right now, the government roughly taxes me about $1,500 every month, which works out to about $18,000 a year. I don't like that. I don't like it at all. Not to mention, I don't like where much of my tax money goes. Yet I pay my taxes because I am been commanded by God to do so. What about if the government is using our tax money for injustice? Does that give us the right to not pay our taxes? Right now, our tax dollars go towards funding abortion in our nation and euthanasia. These are evils in our society that our government promotes and funds, but that doesn't mean I therefore have the right to not pay my taxes. What it does mean, though, is that the government will give an account before God on how they use the money that they taxed us on. So if you're here this morning and you're not paying your taxes or you're cutting corners, understand that you are disobeying God's word. Not only are we called to pay our taxes, we are called to submit to the government. Several places in the New Testament says this, Romans 13, 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. And then Paul gives his argumentation for why. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. We're called to be under governing authorities. 1 Peter 2, 13 to 14, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Titus 3.1, 1 
Remind them, that is, remind the Christians to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. The Apostle Paul says that we need to be reminded. Why? Because our hearts naturally don't want to submit to governing authorities. So therefore, Paul says, remind them of this. So we're called to pay taxes. We're called to submit. We're not only that, we're called to honor government officials. That is to show them respect. In 1 Peter 2, 13 to 17, which I partly read, at the end, Peter says, Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Honor the emperor of Rome. The emperor of Rome was not a good man. And yet Peter tells us that we are called to honor the emperor. Now, does that mean that we can never be critical of the government? No, I would never say that. But if your disposition towards the government is hatred and hostility and a spirit of mockery, mockery, then you are not honoring the government in the way that God expects of you. And I think a lot of us, including myself, need to be reminded of that. Fourthly, we're also called to pray for the government. 1 Timothy 2, 1-4 First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. You see, if we have spent more time complaining about the government than praying for the government, then we are not living the spirit-filled life that God expects of us. The government needs our prayers, whether or not they want our prayers. But if you are so hostile toward the government, maybe what you need to do is devote time to praying for the government. We would be far more effective for good if we spent more time praying for our government rather than complaining about the government. Listen to these words from Justin Martyr. So we worship God only, but in temporal matters we gladly serve you, that is the state, recognizing you as emperors and rulers and praying that along with your imperial power you may also be found to have a sound mind. Suppose you pay no attention to our prayers and our frank statements about everything. That will not injure us, since we believe and are convinced without doubt that everyone will finally experience the restraint of divine judgment in relation to their voluntary actions. Each will be required to give account for their responsibilities, which he has been given by God. That is we pray for you regardless of whether or not you acknowledge it, regardless of whether or not you hear us. We pray for you and we entrust ourselves to God because every single person, including government officials, will have to face divine judgment. So because the state is a legitimate institution created by God, we have certain obligations, paying taxes, submitting to them, honoring them, praying for them. The third thing I want us to see is this. Because the state has been established by God, the state has responsibilities or duties that God has entrusted to the state. 
as Jesus says, the things that are Caesar's. That is, there are things, certain things that have been entrusted to the state. So, for example, in Romans 13, Paul lays out what I would call the primary responsibility of the state, which in summary is to keep order and enforce justice in the affairs of this world. Paul says in Romans 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. That's their role. They are a terror not to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant, hear this, for your good. Most of us do not think of the state that way. God has established the state for our good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So anytime someone breaks the law and is sentenced to, let's say, prison, understand this. What has happened in that moment is God's wrath has actually been poured out on that individual through the actions of the state. That's what Paul says. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in sub subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. You see, the primary task of the state is to keep order and enforce justice. The state has been given the task of punishing evil and rewarding the good. That is what partly allows a society to function. And when the state does this, it allows us to live quiet and peaceful lives, godly and dignified, which is precious in the sight of God. So, God has established the state and has given the state specific responsibilities, primarily the responsibility of enacting justice and maintaining order. Fourthly, because God has given the state specific responsibilities, it means the state is limited in its authority and role. The state is limited in its authority and role. The state does not have absolute authority over all things. That resides in God alone. You see this implied in both the clauses stated by Jesus. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. There are things that are Caesar's, which implies that there are things that are not Caesar's. There are areas in which Caesar has no right to be. You see this also implied in the second clause, and to God, the things that are God's. There are things under the supreme authority of God that the government has no right to claim for itself. The government's authority rightfully has a limited temporal submission from its citizens. God's authority rightfully has eternal unlimited submission from its creatures. So when the government 
begins to use its authority in areas God never designed for it to operate, it's an abuse of authority and is the government operating in the place of God. As Ladd states, there is always inherent in civil authority a tendency to reach beyond its appointed function, a tendency which leads to self-transcendence. So if the government is limited in its authority and its jurisdiction, it's worthwhile to ask what areas are outside the government's jurisdiction? In what ways is the government limit, limited? Well, let me just give you two primarily. One, the government has no authority nor right to operate contrary to God's moral law. The government has no authority nor right to operate contrary to God's moral law. The state is appointed by God, created by God. Therefore, God expects the state to uphold his morality. So when the state believes it has authority to promote what is evil and contrary to God's moral law, it has gone beyond the appointed role the government gave to the state or the appointed role God gave to the state. The state is not an autonomous institution. It's been established by God. As Paul puts it, they are ministers of God called to uphold God's moral law. So let me just give you two examples, examples in, our sort, in our society of the state operating contrary to God's moral law. And I already made mention to them. One of those is abortion and the other is euthanasia. In both these acts, God's moral law is being disregarded. That is the command to not murder. But even further, the, the state is declaring these to be morally good. It's not just that they're promoting evil, they're promoting evil as good. But the state does not have the authority nor right to operate contrary to God's law, even in a democratic society. Second thing is, God has established other institutions apart from the state. And therefore, there is major limits upon what the government can and cannot do in relation to these other institutions. For example, the family would be one of those institutions. The family was not created by the state. The family was created by God, and the authority of the family resides with the father and mother, not the state. So let me give you two examples from Canada's history of the state going beyond its jurisdiction and using authority it does not have from God. We've heard a lot lately about residential schools, some of it accurate and some of it inaccurate. But with the residential schools, the government implemented and funded these schools and sadly, many churches also participated in this where indigenous children were taken from their families against their will. That is the state and the church, quite frankly, went beyond its jurisdiction. Every single one of us know inherently that if the government began showing up to our homes and taking our children from us simply for our beliefs, we know inherently that that would be morally wrong. You might not be able to theologically articulate why. But you know inherently that it would be wrong for the government to show up at your door and take your children from you. 
And the reason is, is they are going outside the boundaries that God has placed upon them. The family does not belong to Caesar. It belongs to God. Now, can the state ever interfere with the family? Yes, it can. For example, if a father or a mother are abusing their children, the state can intervene. But why? Because the law has been broken in some capacity and the government has been given the role to enforce the law. Now, let me give you one other example of the state going beyond its jurisdiction. July 20th, 2005, the Parliament of Canada enacted the Civil Marriage Act, which legalized same-sex marriage. Canada at that time became the fourth country in the world to legalize same-sex marriage behind Spain, Netherlands, and Belgium. Now, when the government legalized same-sex marriage, it took the institution of marriage, which was created by God in Genesis 2, and the government placed the institution of marriage under the authority of the state. You see, the state has always recognized marriage because of the role marriage plays for the good of society. But the state never had authority over marriage. So when the state redefined marriage, it went beyond the boundaries that God placed upon it and acted as God. And so when pastors, theologians, Christians objected to this, it wasn't simply because we believe that same-sex marriage is wrong. It was also that we objected to this because we don't believe the state has such an authority to redefine an institution created by God. You see, when the government goes beyond its jurisdiction, it is operating, and this is going to sound scary and I don't mean it to, but it is operating in a totalitarian manner. Now, let me be clear. I am not saying that because the government changed the law of marriage that we now live in a totalitarian state. We are not Nazi Germany or communist Russia under Stalin or communist China for that matter. But we need to understand that a part of what totalitarianism means is the idea that everything is placed under the authority of the state. It's total, right? Total state control, totalitarianism. So when the state takes something that is not under its jurisdiction, like marriage, it is attempting to have authority over something it was never meant to have. Now, does this mean that we live in a totalitarian society? No, we live in a democratic society. We have an election coming up in two weeks. Praise God that we live in a democratic society. But a democratic government can at times behave in totalitarian ways when it goes beyond the boundaries that God has placed upon it. So those are just two examples where the government in our nation has gone beyond the limitations that God placed upon it. So because God has given the state specific responsibilities, it means the state is limited in its authority and role. Now, before I come to the fifth point, the final point, I just want to give a brief summary of all the points. The first thing we looked at is this. The state is a legitimate institution created by God. Because the state is a legitimate institution established by God, we as citizens and Christians have obligations to the state. 
Because the state has been established by God, the state has responsibilities or duties that God has entrusted to the state, primarily bringing order and bringing justice. And then we just lastly looked at, because God has given the state specific responsibilities, it means the state is limited in its authority and role. This is why, for example, Christianity is antithetical to political systems like communism. Because we do not believe the state has supreme authority. Now this leads to my final point, which is kind of a summary of all the points together. Because the state has been established by God and is under God's authority, the disposition of our hearts towards the state should be one of limited submission, but to God absolute allegiance and submission because he alone has supreme authority over all things. Let me say that again. Because the state has been established by God and is under God's authority, the disposition of our hearts towards the state should be one of limited submission. It is submission, but it's limited. But to God, absolute allegiance and submission because he alone has supreme authority over all things. The disposition of our hearts towards the government should be a willingness to submit. But it's limited because the government is not God. And therefore, when the government demands that we do something contrary to God's moral law or contrary to our consciences, we must obey God rather than man. It would be similar to your responsibility in submitting to the authority of pastors. You have a responsibility in the scriptures as your pastor to submit to me. But my authority is limited. If I go outside of God's boundaries, outside of his word, you have no obligation to submit to me. In fact, you have every obligation to remove me as your pastor. I do not have supreme authority, nor does the state. And therefore, when you submit to the state, you submit to the state in a limited fashion. But hear this, if your disposition towards the government is typically always one of defiance, I don't think that's the proper Christian attitude. But I also don't believe submission to the government under all circumstances is the proper Christian response either. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but never give to God what belongs to God alone. There are two important questions that each of us need to wrestle with this morning. And I will start with the first question that is not as important. And it's a simple question. Are you giving to Caesar what truly belongs to Caesar? Are you praying for Caesar? Are you honoring Caesar? Are you paying your taxes to Caesar? Are you submitting to Caesar? Are you truly giving to Caesar what belongs to Caesar? Second question, and the most important question. Are you giving to God what belongs to God? Have you given your absolute allegiance to the God who created you? who made you in his image and likeness. You are his coin. 
Have you surrendered your life to the Savior of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ, who for your sake was willing to suffer injustice at the hands of Caesar in order to save you from your sins? He was tried and condemned unjustly by the state, but he went willingly to the cross to save rebellious sinners like you and me. What is interesting about the cross of Jesus Christ is that act when Christ was crucified on the cross, it was the most unjust act in all of human history done by the hands of men. They slaughtered and murdered the Son of God, the sinless, righteous Son of God. But that same very act was also the most just act in all of human history because through Christ's death on that cross, God punished sin and put sin to death. God upheld his justice while the government, the state, did injustice against his son. He was tried. He was condemned for you and for me. As 1 Peter 2 22 to 24 says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Jesus bore unjust wounds at the hands of an unjust state so that you and I could be healed and forgiven of our sins in order to walk in newness of life and to live for righteousness. Are you giving to God what is rightfully God's? That is, have you given God your entire life? I pray that you would do that this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, even at times when it is hard and harsh. And Lord, we pray that by your spirit, you would help us to live according to your word. We pray, Lord, that, that we would have a desire to honor you in every area of our lives, that we would surrender ourselves to you and entrust our lives to your care. And Lord, we do pray that you would help us to relate to the government and honor the government in these difficult days. Give us wisdom as individuals and also as a church for how we are supposed to conduct ourselves and how we are supposed to relate to the government. And Lord, we do pray that our government would act justly and uphold righteousness and goodness and truth and freedom. And Father, if there's anyone here this morning who still has not given themselves fully to Christ, I pray that by your spirit, they would do so this morning. There is no greater authority in the universe and there is no greater authority that is good like the authority of Christ. So please, Lord, do your saving work. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.